So as we have titled the series, these uh, first chapters are the beginning of everything. And uh, we are finding that uh, again and again, and this morning is no exception. And as we come to uh, these verses, I, I just want to lay a little bit of a foundation. It's a bit of a, a, a probably going back over old ground, but I, I thought it was necessary because when we come to chapter 9, 8 and 9 of Genesis, what we have is a new creation. Um, we have the first creation that God destroyed with the flood, and now God recreates and repopulates the world. And so there's some things that he repeats and that he says, and there are some things which are foundational for you and I to understand our place in the world and how we fit in this world that God has made. I like to call these worldview issues. Every single, single one of us has a worldview. A worldview is, is how you look at the world, how you answer some of the big questions of life, how you slot them into your thinking and, and make sense of the world in which you live. And as I said, uh, these chapters are chapters which are written to all of humankind, so they are relevant for everybody, not just for Christians. And so as we come to these, there's four sort of questions, which I think at least, there, there may be more, but are foundational to your worldview. They are foundational for you thinking through your place in this world and how you understand circumstances and events in your life. So the first one is simply, why is there something and not nothing? I'm sure you all think of that when you, when you, when you get up in the morning and you, or you go for a drive or you look up into the, the, the heavens and you see the stars or you go for a hike in the woods and you see the beauty that's in the woods or you go out on the water or you, you look around you and you wonder, why is there something and not nothing? And there are a host of answers to that question. The biblical answer to that question is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then you read through the rest of Genesis 1 and you say, and God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. And so the very simple answer to why is there something and not nothing is because God existed and he created this world and everything that is in it. This is repeated again and again, even in the recreation. It's repeated in, in Genesis 9 as we will go through, as God recreates, repopulates, um, and resets new boundaries for the world in which we live. Take away for a moment any disbelief that you might have in God. Or maybe even if, if you're here and you haven't accepted God, just for a moment, ignore your reasons for denying the reality of God and simply ask yourself, self, why is there something and not nothing? And work your way to a beginning to answer that. As you know, the world will throw at you any number of answers to that question, but the biblical answer to that question is because God created the heavens and the earth. The second uh, question is, what gives meaning to life? I'm sure we all wrestle with that from time. Why am I on this earth? Uh, why have I been placed here at this time and in this place? It is a struggle, I think, that almost every human being, when they come to a point where they can work about this or think this through in their mind, they begin to ask the question. One of the realities of the Bible that it tells us again and again, though, is that we will never find meaning outside of a relationship with God. We will never find full meaning or the full purpose of why God has created us outside of the image of God. The Bible, Genesis, reiterates again and again in chapter 1 and chapter 5 and again in chapter 9 that we are made in the image of God. We are made in his likeness. 
And so the pursuit of meaning begins with a recognition or acknowledgement of that, that my life and the meaning of my life is somehow wrapped up in my relationship with this God who created everything that exists. The life that I live, the gifts that I have, the pursuits that I, that I follow after are all part of the blessings of God described in Genesis 1 and again reiterated in Genesis 9. God made us. In him we live and move and have our being. We are to worship him as Noah did. We are to walk with him as Noah did. We are to live in relationship with him as Adam and Eve did. We are to honor him with our lives. We have said this again and again over the years from Augustine. The soul is restless until it finds its rest in God. In other words, that is where our, the, this is the discovery of meaning in our life begins, by understanding our rest in God, by understanding our relationship with God. And out of that then flows an understanding of all the purposes that God has for us as individuals uniquely. The third question is, why is there morality in the world? Where does morality come from? In the world, is there such a thing as morality? There are people today, and I, I, I've read these and I have watched it, witnessed in news, and there are so many people now, secular people, who can't even use the word evil because evil implies morality. And then morality then asks the question well, where does morality come from? Where do we get the notion of right and wrong? Where do we get the notion of good and evil from? Well, I would argue, and I think the Bible argues very plainly, that morality comes from God. In part, it comes because we have made, been made in the image of God, and God is a moral being. He is righteous. He is just. He is holy. We read in the Bible how God created this world that then God gave, gave commands to those that he created. Those commands would either be obeyed or they would be disobeyed. There was a tree that was placed in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. That's, a, that's morality. And the temptation of that tree was to pursue morality in our own uh, senses, with our own wishes, with our own guidelines, as opposed to submitting to the morality of God. But God gave commands, and if they were broken, there were consequences that came with that command. And one of the consequences was the shame and the guilt that we feel inside. Why do we feel shame and guilt when we do something wrong? Why do we feel sort of pride or feel good about ourselves when we do something right? Because it's all in relationship to God and the guidelines that he has set for us. The battle of so many in our world, so many, the battle of belief in God boils down to morality. To believe in God means that then I believe that I am accountable to God and that I am accountable to the moral structure that God has placed within me as being one made in his image, but also the moral structure that God has put in the world in which we live. Why do so many reject God? Because they don't want him to tell them how to live. They don't want him to put boundaries to their life. They don't want him to put boundaries to their pleasurable pursuits. They don't want him to put boundaries to their sex lives. They don't want him to put boundaries to the way they spend their money. They don't want them to put boundaries to the to way that they think. This is one of the fundamental reasons people reject God. But you can't get away from morality. 
because we all have a conscience and our conscience reminds us of that morality. So the question then remains is where does the notion of right and wrong come from? Well, a biblical view argues very clearly it comes from God who created us. And then the fourth question, and there, there could be others, but these, I think, are four foundational questions to a biblical worldview. And I think the, answer, the answers that the Bible gives are, are the most coherent of any other biblical worldview out there. So the final question that I think that comprises uh, the foundation of a biblical worldview is what happens when I die? We all think about that, some to greater degrees than others. Some of that's uh, depending on how old we are or how healthy we are or how uh, um, we watch the world around us. But what happens when I die? The Bible is absolutely clear that we will all die. Read Genesis chapter 5 and the familiar phrase in Genesis chapter 5 after it describes a particular man and then the, the sons and daughters that he has removed and how long he lived his life, it says, and then he died. Death is part of our existence and part of our being. But there's one individual in chapter 5 that doesn't die. And it says, And Enoch walked with God, and he was no more, because God took him. Well, where did God take him? Like, did, did, he, did he just sort of vaporize? Um, did he just go into hiding in another part of the world and no one ever saw him again? No, the implication is God took him to be with him. God took him to another place. God took him to an eternal existence. Now, you have to read the rest of the Bible to follow this train of thinking, but the Bible is very clear that physical death does not end our existence. The Bible is very clear that after we die, we go on into an eternal existence. And part of the notion is even, why do you think about death? Is Ecclesiastes, it says, where God has put eternity into the hearts of all men. Why do you think about what happens when you die? Because God has placed within us, which is part of his image in us, an eternal reality. Now God, who has no beginning and no end, created us with a beginning, but also no end. And so the Bible will tell us that when we die, our eternal destiny is sealed and our eternal life continues, and it continues in one of two places. For those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, for those who have uh, found the truth in God and have accepted it by faith, to them they enter into eternal life and exist forevermore in the new heaven and the new earth that God will create when this earth is destroyed. But for those who reject God, for those who turn their back on God, if they die outside of God, if they die in disbelief, if they die in rejection of God, it says they will spend eternity separated from God in hell. The Bible asks those questions. They're hard things to wrestle with, but that's part of a biblical worldview. So we've been piecing those together, and I just wanted to summarize them for us a little bit again this morning that the Genesis presents us with a worldview of how to answer those four questions which are so critical to our worldview. So then we come to Genesis 9, 1 to 7. What we are finding here is that we are now in a newly created world. That's why I have called the sermon, at least on my notes, the new world. The world has changed, though. 
I think we understand that pre-flood world is different than post-flood world. And what God sets in place and what God institutes for all humankind is summarized in some short ways in these number of verses here. One of the things that seems to be clear is that the violence that was characteristic of the pre-flood world, remember it says in in verse 6 that the world was, uh, if I can find it quickly, that the earth, earth was filled with violence. Violence is now part of the new world as well. And so God places things, puts boundaries in this new world that will protect us who live in a violent world. We've said a number of times that the flood did not give us new natures. We still have a sin nature. And that sin nature is one that is often characterized by violence. And so human life needs protection. And so we come through these verses, and they might sound strange, but it's God's provision and God's protection for you and I, for all humanity who now exists in this world. And he begins simply by saying, God blessed Noah. That's a wonderful phrase, God blessed Noah. It's, it's a way of saying that God looked at Noah and said, I'm, I'm going to pour out good things upon you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to preserve you. God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus, Ephesians Ephesians will tell us. It's a wonderful thing to be blessed by God. Do you experience the blessing of God? Are you thankful for the blessings of God in your life? Do we deserve the blessings of God that he pours out on us? It's a wonderful gift of God's grace and mercy that God blesses us. And then he frames his response. Notice in verse 1 and verse 7, we have the same sort of declaration by God, the same command, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Those are the bookends for this small little section of Scripture here. And as God told initial creation, he said to Adam and Eve, and he said to the initial creation, he said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So God here now reiterates those words to this new creation. Same thing, carried over into the new world. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Some look at these as, as, as they would call them the three imperatives of procreation. These are commands. They are imperatives. This is a blessing of God that we participate in God's population of the earth. Be fruitful, be multiply, and fill the earth. And as I say, it provides a link between the first creation and the second creation. Through these, humankind will experience the blessing of God. Here is God's view of human life. It is a good thing. And God wants more of it. And God wants it to fill the earth. Humankind is God's blessing set upon this earth. But here it is that we begin to find pushback against God. We hear God's words here very clearly, and not just to Christians, but to all humanity, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God commands that the earth be populated. Man increasingly is demanding that the world be depopulated. It's fascinating that even here we find rebellion of man and woman at work. It's fascinating that even in some of the ancient accounts of the flood, 
that, that in these ancient accounts, the earth was wiped out not because of wickedness, but because of overpopulation. Even back in the early days when, when, when the humans were just beginning to write records of the flood, they were describing the reason of the flood was overpopulation. We need to depopulate the world. And to ensure that this population would not reoccur, the problem would not be occur, the gods reached a compromise by inflicting women with sterility, a high infant mortality rate, and an artificial barrenness by cult practices. Read abortion in there. And so that was the response of the secular world separated from God that didn't have a biblical worldview. Let's keep population down. It was an absolute rejection and disobedience to the command of God to multiply and fill the earth. This is what Genesis 1, 9 tells us, or 9, 1 tells us. This is God's desire. This is how God provides blessing in the world. In any Christian discussion regarding the concerns of overpopulation, and there are many of them taking place today, need to be done in context of this particular passage here where God tells all humankind to be fruitful multiply, and fill the earth. You say, the world is in real trouble right now. Around the world, particularly in first world countries, the birth rates have dropped precipitously, a lot, <laughs> below what is necessary to simply maintain the present population. And so that has huge implication for an aging population. That has huge implication for our tax system. That has huge implications for food production. But the birth rate in first world countries has now dropped well below what is necessary even to sustain population. We have controlled population growth through abortion. We have controlled population growth through sex selection and limits on how many children a family can have. We have reduced populations through the brutality of wars. We are choosing to have fewer children, if any children. We are bound and determined to control population through state-sponsored murder. We are peddling with crop productions around the world, all with the intention of reducing the population of the world. These actions are in direct conflict to the gift of God mentioned in Genesis 9.1 and 9.7. They don't recognize that God commands that the earth be both populated and that it will be sustained and protected by him. Loved ones, a biblical worldview is a different lens. It's a lens looking at the world through the eyes of God, not through the eyes of sinful man. And then we go on and we see what God does to protect human life that will populate this world now in which we live. God establishes a law or laws that will curb the violence among humanity that brought about the necessity of the flood in the first place. And it's interesting to note that in the, in the first creation, God says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And that is quickly followed by subdue and rule. But notice that's not here in the second creation. Why is there no reference to subdue and rule over the earth in the second population? 
it suggests something has changed. There's something different about the pre-flood world and the post-flood world. The rule is going to be difficult to carry out in a hostile environment. There will still be the domestication of animals by human beings. There will still be the ability to use the animal world to, to, um, to produce all kinds of things. But there is a hostility now in this second creation, which makes it difficult for man to rule and subdue the world in which we live. So the first measure that God institutes in this new world in which we live is he puts into animals a fear and a dread of humankind. It's fascinating. I don't know if we, you, you've thought about this ever, but it's clearly what God has, how he has structured this world in which we live. He has put a barrier. This, and this is, speaks about God's control over his creation, doesn't it? Creation hasn't evolved from nothing. Creation has been made by God, and he controls creation, and he can put within creation this fear of humankind, this dread of humankind, so that it doesn't just wantonly take over and destroy humankind. One wrote, the providence of God is a secret bridle to restrain the violence of creation. Behind this, again, then, is an intention by God to preserve and to protect human life on earth. Loved ones, even human life or animal life is accountable to God. He will hold animals accountable who take human life. The second measure is that human beings are warned not to take the life of another human being. This is God's injunction. This is God's protection of you and I, that he puts in humankind this warning, this prescription, do not take the life of another human being. Human being, human life is unique. And when we take another human life, we forfeit our own life. It's unique to the new creation because remember in the old creation, God didn't take Cain's life. In fact, he protected Cain. And God didn't take Abel's life or Lamech's life for murdering and boasting about it. Lamech continued to exist. So now in this new world, God is establishing new boundaries for our safety and for our protection in the world in which we live. This is where the discussions, at least in Christian circles, and not just Christian circles, but secular circles, come around capital punishment. Where does the issue of capital punishment even come from? It flows out of this particular text in Genesis chapter 9. I understand it is a complex issue. I understand it is a controversial issue, and I'm not going to give my opinion on it. All to say that capital punishment, though, rests on the foundation of the value of human life. This is what is behind this notion of God that he sets up here. At the heart of such legislation, at the heart of even the concept of capital punishment, is the reality that human life is of immense value. And it's of immense value because it images God. 
And so when you wound a human, you wound God. When you take a human life, it's an attack on the very person of God himself. James would tell us when we curse another human being, we curse the image of God. And so capital punishment, while it might be abhorrent and wrong, don't lose sight of the fact of why God institutes it. So that we value human life. So murder then is first of all an offense against God. Loved ones, what you finally conclude then about capital punishment can't be separated from the value that God places on human life. And the thrice repeated turn, God himself will hold both animals and humans accountable for taking a human life. I say this carefully. It's one thing to wrestle with the reality and the practice and the place of capital punishment and possibly set aside its application in society. I, I get that. It's quite entirely, though, another thing to do the same with God's command about the value of human life. To disregard the value of human life and the dignity of human life through abortion and through state-sponsored murder and maid is not acceptable before God. Man might disregard God and devalue human life, but God will never look the other way, and he will hold us accountable. And then he makes this fascinating statement also in here, another one, where God expands the human diet. This is extraordinary to me. I, just, you know, I, I've never thought a lot about these until this last couple of weeks when I've had to dive into this again in fresh ways. God says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Remember, this is God's command for all humankind. Not just for Christians or not just for a secular world. This is God's command for humanity as it will now begin to populate the earth again. And one wonders, why is the diet expanded? Why does it now include every moving thing? Every living creature I will give you as food. But notice a few things here. Every moving thing, I think in other words, one of the things at state is that we need to take a life, not eat carrion or roadkill or those sorts of things. In other words, there's almost a limitation on that you take animal life for the purpose of eating, not indiscriminate slaughter and killing. And so he says, from every moving thing, from every living thing, you may take food. And then he says, as a prescription, do not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. That's a way of saying that when the blood comes out of a living being, then their life is given up. And it will eventually point us to Jesus Christ, who shed his blood, who died on the cross for us. But I think in part, it's just a note about savagery. 
Don't in your hunger and don't in your, in your violence just take something that's not even dead or barely dead and eat it. Cook it and eat it carefully and eat it properly and eat it respectfully. So how do we bring these things together? You're really surprised. What did I come to church this morning for? I didn't know this was coming. But I suspect there's a few things that are going through your heads. But I want to try and zoom it back for a minute to give you a framework through which to think this through and talk this through this afternoon and the rest of this day. Notice the ways that we human beings have rebelled against the purposes and the commands of God. Do we not in countless ways reject God's command to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth? God wants us to populate the earth. God is not afraid of a populated earth. God will provide for the population of the world. But man, on the other hand, is looking at as many ways as possible to depopulate the earth. That's rebellion against God. Secondly, do we not in so many ways disregard the image of God that is in each human being that is conceived? God doesn't do that. God places enormous value on every single human being. For every single one of them is made in the image of God. As a society, we are going down paths in state-sponsored way and in personal um, decisions that are the exact opposite of what God commands for us. We are bent on rebelling against God. And thirdly, what about our diet? I'm not saying that everyone has to eat meat. I'm not saying that everyone should be a vegetation. A vegetation. <laughs> Maybe you should all be carrots. I don't know. Uh, what I am saying, though, is this. There is a massive movement in our world today to reject meat, to discard the eating of meat. Whatever else we might say about that, one of the things we should say about that is that is a direct rebellion against the word of God, which has given us all things to eat. The point simply being is, look at the ways that we as humanity are rebelling and rejecting God's blessings that he's meant to pour out upon us. Finally, as we just wrap it up, remember that God is real and that changes everything. To take these texts in, in Genesis, and particularly the flood text, and, and blow them up is necessary. And at the risk of being repetitious, remember what we've said a few times already, that the flood is meant to remind us of and warn us of a coming day at the end of this age where God will again destroy the world and everything in it. And the warnings that God gives us, the, the provisions that God makes for us for safety, that God gave to Noah in the days of the flood and to those beings that lived on the earth then are to be taken seriously for us today. And the only escape from the sure and certain judgment that will fall at the end of this age is to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. God's provided ark, if I can use that illustration, for safety and preservation. 
And being in Christ will transfer us or take us through the judgment of God and bring us out on the other side in the new heaven and the new earth. Loved ones, this flood stuff is not just for your discussion and for your intellectual delight. It has been placed in the word of God to remind us and warn us of the final judgment when God will destroy this earth with fire. And the only path of safety is Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus today and find safety. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. And I do mean that. It has instructed me these past weeks. It has reminded me that I have maybe lost sight of the things that matter to you. That I have let the world around me determine my thinking. I have let the world around me drive the narrative. And I need to come back to your word. And I need your word to shape my narrative. I need your word to shape my living. I need your word to shape my thinking. I need your word to shape my acting. And so, Father, whatever position we take on any of these things I've mentioned today, may we not lose sight of the fact that are we living our lives in obedience to you or in rejection of you? Help us figure that out, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.